Thank you, Hal, and welcome to the National Capital Bible Church. Uh, yes, as I heard someone mention, it is a new year. It's a new day, a new month, and a new year, 2022. So, happy new year to you as well. And as we begin our day, today is the first Sunday of the month, and this is our tradition to have the Lord's Supper. It's a wonderful time for us to remember who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. As a matter of fact, in John 3, we're told that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For he did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth in him, the Son, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the one and only Son of God. Whosoever believeth in the Son shall receive eternal life. He that does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So let's take a few seconds as we prepare for our service this morning, closing our eyes, bowing our heads, and then I will begin us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for each day that you've given us, and we're thankful, Father, for this new year. We pray, Father, that we would remember that you are our God, that you are the one who has a plan for each one of us. We're thankful for this church, and we're thankful for those who attend. We're thankful for the Word of God that guides us in how to live our spiritual lives. We pray, Father, that in this new year that we would honor you and that as we live, we will be witnesses for you to others so that they may have an interest in how to have a relationship with you. We ask for your blessing upon our service this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare for our service this morning, our communion service, please turn to a passage that we found often during our Christmas service, Matthew, Matthew 1.21. This is a passage that is provided for us by the author Matthew, but in reality, he's quoting an angel. So even the angels know who our Savior is. And you'll remember that the angel was speaking or appeared, maybe a better way to say this, that speaking to Joseph, and he says in verse 21, the angel to Joseph, and she, Mary, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
two words here that are important to us amongst many, but two that we'll see this morning. First of all is the word Jesus. This is, as I mentioned when we were studying this, this is a Latin word taken from the Latin translation of the Bible. The Greek word is Jesus, and this word means either sometimes it's translated Jesus, it's understood to be the Lord, the Savior is what we have here. The Savior. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's translated Joshua, Yahshua. And Yahshua means to be delivered. We also have the word saved. And this, in our Greek uh, New Testament, is the word for deliverance. Translated here, saved, is fine. But it has the sense of being a redeemer. So our Lord Jesus Christ, at his birth, or his prediction, his prophecy of his birth, would be our Savior, our Redeemer. And that's what we are remembering this morning. We remember who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We remember that after the Lord was born, after he grew, after his began his ministry, in his ministry, he often had the Passover meal with his disciples. But the night that he had his past, his last Passover meal, he said that no longer should they observe the Passover as having been the departure departure from Egypt. Instead, it would be his death on the cross. And so in the evening, prior to his crucifixion, our Lord wanted to ensure that everyone who observed the cross would know that this was the central event of human history. And it was the signature event for the new covenant. In other words, there was going to be a kingdom, a messianic kingdom coming, and there was going to be a completely change as he was the messianic king. As the Lord Jesus Christ went to cross, he was a sacrifice. He had been the sacrifice that the world had awaited. We had seen many, probably millions of offerings that would illustrate this event, the Lord Jesus Christ going to the cross, so that no more would Israel or anyone else look to the animal sacrifices. Instead, they would now remember the Lord Jesus Christ going to the cross. God the Father was about to demonstrate through the Lord Jesus Christ his love for us, and he would give his, as we see in John 3.16, he was giving his only son, his, sometimes would translate it, his uniquely son. He certainly was. But he was the only son. He was the son of God. 
in response to our Father's act of grace towards us, what are we to do? We are simply to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ's death. We can also say his work on the cross. The purpose of the Lord's table is to remind us of the grace provision of God the whole of God the Father in providing all the needs that would be not that would be needed for our salvation. This salvation is not dependent upon who and what we are, but instead what we have but what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. His death on the cross and it was on the cross that he accomplished our redemption. The Lord's table is designed to help us to remember the Lord Jesus Christ, what he was and what he's accomplished on our behalf. It's designed for us to remember and to focus on the biblical truth that is taught through the symbolism of the elements. We don't see the bread and the cup as literal elements but they are symbols. And that's very often uh, missed by those who do not understand what Christ was teaching. We are not to worship the elements, but the person and the truths they represent. The unleavened bread, unleavened bread pictures the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity. He was fully God. We describe it as being undiminished deity. But he was also true humanity, united united in one person in his during his ministry here on earth. In his human body and in his life, he lived without sin. He was qualified to go to the cross and there to die as our substitute and to take upon himself the judicial penalty of our sins. The cup that we will that we have we will have, symbolize his blood, which represents the Christ's work on the cross. Throughout the the Bible, most of the time, the word blood can, or I should say, very often it's used for literal blood. But it represents the death of either the animal or the person. And so the blood here represents our Father's death. And we understand that it was His spiritual death on the cross that provides for us salvation. So the bread represents our Lord's qualification in His person to go to the cross. So He was qualified to be the Lamb, the unblemished Lamb that was used through the Israel's sacrifices. So he was qualified to go to the cross, and the cup represents the sacrifice of Christ while on the cross. These are the thoughts that we should have be thinking during the communion service, and this is a very important ritual for us because it brings us mentally aware of why we have an opportunity to have a relationship with God. Since his death on the cross paid for the sins of the entire human race, there is nothing we can add to it. He finishes the requirement for salvation.
There is nothing we can do to earn or deserve salvation. Salvation is simply an acceptance of a free gift. Scripture says, as many as receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave to them the authority, the right, the power, the ability to become the children of God. Salvation is by faith. It's by faith in Christ alone. The Lord's table is for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus' supper is not restricted by church membership. It's open to every single believer. As a matter of fact, according to our our text of Scripture from, from Paul, we are required to engage in the Lord's Supper. Now, just prior to beginning our service, before receiving the cups, the bread and the cup, it's important for us to remember that we are in fellowship. And so I'll, I'll ask the two deacons to assist me. This is your opportunity to close your eyes, bow your heads, and focus. Try to focus as best you can on what's happening in these messages, these passages. So please close your eyes, bow your heads. I'll ask Bill to give thanks for the bread. It's our custom to wait, to hold the bread until all have been served. Once more, the wafer, the bread, we call it unleavened bread, represents his body, his sinless perfection as he went to the cross. And the word of God tells us, the apostle Paul introduces us to this. And he says that the same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and after he had given thanks, He broke it and said, This bread is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. As we gave thanks for the bread, as we thank for God's provision of the Lord Jesus Christ in his perfection to go to the cross, we also ask for thanks, thankful for the cup, for the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And I'll ask Scott to give thanks for the cup. The cup of juice represents his blood, which in turn represents his spiritual death on the cross. In him we have redemption through his blood, his spiritual death, the forgiveness of sins. So the Apostle Paul tells us 
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, his death. This do as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Dearly Father, we are thankful for this ritual. We're thankful for the opportunity for us to remember your love and the Lord Jesus Christ's spiritual sacrifice on the cross. We're thankful, Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ's work on the cross was completed on that evening. We're thankful that it is simply a matter of faith, faith in believing in his sacrificial work for us on the cross. We're thankful that in every time that we observe this, that it helps us to have a closer relationship with you and understand a better understanding and understand a better purpose for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew 26.30, we're told that Jesus, prior to taking his disciples over to the, the garden, that they sang a song. And so we have that same tradition. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, that there is an opportunity for us to give, to express our love. Very often we could say our relationship, our maturity as we grow. And there is a sense there that we want to give. The Apostle Paul says that there's not a requirement requirement. He simply says, each one of you should give just as he decides, just as you determine. It's up to you. Just as he decides in his heart, not reluctantly nor compulsion, not compulsion, not under compulsion, because God loves a willing, a gracious, a cheerful giver. Generally, Father, we are thankful that we have this opportunity to express our love. We ask for your blessing upon these gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. Just prior to us turning to 1 Corinthians 7, we'll be in verse 17. I'd like for us, now that I've given you that uh, scripture, let's turn to Romans 12. Because I'd like to mention just a word or two about our new year and possibly my wish to you for a wonderful new year for not simply we should say and it comes very easily happy new year and that's fine it's a greeting it's a friendly greeting and it hopes for us to have a marvelous year but it should also be a godly year it should be a a year that honors our God and our Savior. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Romans, and he says, I beseech you. And what we see here, he is really commanding them. This is going to be how the Romans are to live their lives. He says, 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, by the compassions, we would say, this is what God has provided for us. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's not only reasonable, it's your expected service. This is is how we are to live as believers, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a service, and that is to give ourselves as in a sacrificial way. And so he continues in verse 2, and he says, and do not be conformed to this world. This is very close to what we will study today in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, don't be conformed to the cosmic world around us. And it's so easy. Uh, we live every day in God's world, Satan's world. And it is not a way that honors God. Why? Because... Satan leads a rebellion, and the world in which we live truly rebels against God and God's godly life. So, verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, your thinking, that you may prove what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect, what is mature, the mature will of God. And you can use maturity there, but really perfect works because God's will for us is perfect. And we should seek that. And it doesn't come easy to us. We come from the cosmic system and we have a cosmic mind, a fallen mind. And After salvation, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to transform the way we think. Not to think the way the world does, but to think a way that we learn in the Word of God. And so this is our challenge every year, is to transform our thinking, transform our minds so that we're not thinking, we're not following the cosmic world, but instead we are following the thinking, the mind of God. And where is that? It's in the Word of God. And I think it's important for us to understand that the only way we are going to have that transformation is by spending time in the Word of God. I've mentioned this several times, but it's important for us to every day read the Word of God. It refreshes us. It reminds us. It encourages us. It edifies us. And one of the ways to help us do this is to try to read through our Bible through the year so that we we read from Genesis probably Matthew as well, throw in the Psalms so that you can complete that at the end of the year. You start in Genesis and you end in Revelation. 
this past year, I enjoyed once more reading through the Word of God. And as you slowly come to the end of these texts, the texts in the Old Testament, Malachi, and then also Revelation, and as you finish reading through Psalm, because I think it's important to have a Psalm every day because it's encouraging, it's remarkable. Even when David is under pressure, he recognizes that his refuge is the Lord. And so as you read through the Word of God, it truly does help you to understand who God is, to understand his mind. And that's how we, we transform our thinking. All right. Our scripture reading then is going to be in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, 24. What was your situation when you became, when you came to faith? You're not going to see this question, but it's what it leads us to what we're going to see in this passage. Passage 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. Now you might say, this sounds like this is going to be a challenge to cover this, but it shouldn't be because I think it really does lead itself. Let me read 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 17. But as God has distributed dis- distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, live how you should live. And so I ordain in all the churches. Verse 18. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not be become uncircumcised was anyone called while unsurmised uncircumcised let him not be circumcised 19 circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but keeping the commandments of God is is what's important let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called were you called while a slave Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, take that opportunity. Rather use it. Verse 22. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Verse 23. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Now, we have several words here that I think we simply need to understand. And as we work our through these, I'm going to try to move as quickly as I can, but I'm not going to have specific written points on the, the slides here. But we're going to see several different ways to understand how these certain words should be understood. First of all, in first, well, let me give you a little intro here. In chapter seven, Paul is teaching about marriage and sexual immorality. You may remember that. It's been Sunday or so. But the Corinthian church was struggling with what we just read in Romans 12, one and two transforming their minds. They were 
not to remain in the attitude of Corinthians, the world attitudes of Corinthians, but to transform to the mind of God. In other words, to move to godly thinking. Paul knew that there was a significant difference between the Corinthians' attitudes to that of the mind of God. In making the transformation to God's thinking, Paul did not want to destroy the fabric of the families. Therefore, in verses 10 through 16, Paul directs the marriages should not be severed because one member of the family is an unbeliever. Why? The believer member thus should be a witness to the unbelieving member and also to be a spiritual teacher to the children. That's what we've learned so far. Now, in verses 17 through 24, Paul inserts guidance about the, situa- about the situations each believer finds himself. And I believe that verses 17 through 24 really are a parenthesis. It's an insert. Paul certainly wrote it. It wasn't added later. But Paul is writing about marriage. Look at verse 20, verse 25, which we're not covering today. But he says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment for the Lord. Yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord, whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. And so he's going to go on teaching about sexuality and marriage. But in our text this morning, that is not what he's going to be addressing. So in verse, as we begin to verse 17, we're going to see this insert to his main topic. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. I'm going to give you a couple working translations that I've worked on. Some I've just pulled from another version. But it helps us to understand what Paul is saying. So he says, only or nevertheless. He's just finished verse 16. Nevertheless, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule to all the churches. Now, I'm going to change the word called there. Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. When did he first call them? He called them at the time when they heard the gospel and they believed. So, a quick couple points here on this word called because it can be confusing. The word called is literally to invite or to summon. Secondly, often in the palace in the Pauline epistles, called means the invitation of gospel. So, this is how we should almost always see the word called. It's the invitation through the gospel. Thirdly, called is not a determination of God to save the person. And it's very often thought that way, that God determined who was going to be a believer and who was not going to be. Therefore, he called them and he didn't call these. 
That's not how this word should be understood and used. So fourth, called therefore in context is a reference to someone who has placed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is teaching the believers in the Corinthian church. And so this is how they responded to the gospel when they were invited, when they were summoned, when they were called. In 1 Corinthians seven eighteen, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Now, I'm not certain how that would happen, but it's not what Paul is trying to say here. It's an example. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Let's get a couple examples here, or at least this example, the working translation. Was anyone at the time of his call, his faith, already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. In other words, don't worry about it. Was anyone at the time of his call, of his faith, uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. What was Paul trying to teach here? Paul is not using uncircumcised literally, but simply indicating that situation or the condition in which the person was found. The imperatives were directed to both Jews and Gentiles. So as Paul is teaching this, he has Jews and Gentiles in the church, and he's simply telling them circumcision or not being circumcised is not the importance here. Set that aside. Don't make that uh, an issue in the church. First Corinthians seven nineteen, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. A working translation here, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Another way of saying this, for it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised. The important thing is to keep God's commandments, his instructions, what Paul teaches them in the word of God, in the epistles. Paul is not saying that circumcision is improper, but it's not a factor in salvation. That's his point. Salvation in the Old Testament, or under the Mosaic Law, was based on faith in deliverance. So, in the Old Testament, there are those who believe that keeping the law saved them, the Jews. And there are some, even today, that believe Jews, uh, by keeping the law, find salvation. And that's not true. In the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law was a spiritual life, not a way of salvation. So under the Mosaic Law, circumcision was part of the spiritual life. In fact, circumcision was a requirement prior to the Mosaic Law. So when someone says, well, keeping the Mosaic Law by being circumcised brought faith. No. Circumcision was prior to the Mosaic Law. 
Abraham was circumcised. Why? Because it was a symbol. It was an indicator of a commitment, a, a covenant with God, the Abrahamic covenant. 1 Corinthians 7.20, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. A working translation would be, each one must remain in the situation in life in which he came to faith. There are unbelievers. As a matter of fact, we'll start this way. There were some believers in Corinth. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul encountered Aquila and Priscilla. They were believers, but they were in a huge minority. Most of the believers that came to the established church were unbelievers. And not only was the man, of course, an unbeliever, but so was the woman. But there was going to be a change. There were going to be many who believed. And what? how should they act? Well, we're told that each one must remain in that situation. If you come to faith, but your husband or your husband does not, that is not a time for you to sever the relationship. And we learned that, by the way, in the last paragraph. So each one must remain in that situation. Why? Because you've changed. The other person didn't change. Verse 21, were you called while a slave? And you'll notice that he's not saying that those who were in the church were slaves. He's just going to use an example. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. As a matter of fact, I might even have another way of looking at this. He's going to use another parenthesis here. Another working translation, were you a slave when you were called, when you believed? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Now, he's not saying run away. He's saying, though, there are times when freedom will be provided for them. Another working translation, were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about that. That's not a big deal. Parenthesis, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. Because your condition may change. That's fine. But he's not addressing slavery here. Verse 21, Paul is using slavery or freedom as example to situation his readers would experience. Paul is not validating slavery, but simply the condition that existed at that time with somebody. So you can't come to this passage and say, see, Slavery is valid, is valid. Paul, he's not addressing slavery. He's using two examples here. Either you're free or you might be slave. And if you become a believer, you are a, a believer while you're a slave or you're a believer while you're in free. Therefore, don't worry about it. 22. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. 
you are now, even though humanly you are a slave, you are now free in the Lord. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You may think that you can do whatever you want, but God has a plan for you, and you are a slave. Another way of understanding this, for the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was, uh, when called, we could say, believes, is Christ's slave. I like this one as well. And remember, if you were a slave when you believed in the Lord, you are now free in the Lord. So your situation in which you find yourself might be difficult, but you're now free in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you were free when you believed in the Lord, you are now a slave of Christ. So what he's saying here is is what we find in Galatians, where he says there's no distinction here between slave and free. He's not saying that it ends. He's simply saying we're believers together and we are now devoted to the Lord. 723, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Now, someone might say, well, no longer can uh, someone devote themselves as a slave to someone. Again, this is not his point. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Here's another way to see this. God paid a high price for you. How did he pay that? His son. So don't be enslaved by the world. And that's what we so often do. We become slaves of the cosmic world, of Satan's world. He's saying we are freed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul calls himself a bondservant of God in Romans 1.1. Romans 1.1 and Philippians 1.1. Paul was a Roman citizen, but he says, I'm a bondservant of the Lord. So for someone to say being a slave is not Christian or something, I need to completely change this. No. Paul says, I'm a bondservant. Romans 1, Philippians 1. Being a bondservant means to be totally devoted or committed to a person or belief. Paul tells the Corinthian believers not to follow the immoral thoughts, the activities of the world. Why? Because if they do, they are bondservants of the world. Of course, the price mentioned in this verse is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, of course, we observed in our Lord's Supper. Jesus' death on the cross purchased us from the slave market of sin. And we find that in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, We are bought out of that slave, that sin of slavery. So finally, in verse 24, Paul concludes by saying that the believers must remain in the situation where they find themselves when they believe. 
So he says, Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. The working translation here, brothers, because that's what we have there, Aphidelis, believers, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were when God invited them. Or we could say, each of you, brethren, should remain as you were when God first invited you and you believed. So this passage, you can see, doesn't really change from what Paul was teaching in the previous paragraph. He's using these examples, and we'll return to that when we get to verse 25. So, Paul is not saying that our lives must be forever unchanged. That's not his point. In the context, Paul is teaching stability, harmony, and contentment. We could probably say that this is an example of the fruit of God the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. So these are the things that, that Paul taught and he now is emphasizing. In the, in the previous paragraph, Paul had requested believers not to seek a divorce from an unbelieving mate. If the unbelieving mate is willing to remain married, the believer must not divorce. On the other hand, if the unbeliever desires to divorce, then the believer must not refuse. In this paragraph, Paul applies the same principles to the same situations. He does this so that we have a better understanding of what he's teaching in the previous paragraph. That's why he inserts this. At the time of faith in Christ, we must remain in our immediate state, trusting God for our situation. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we belong to God, and we must be content with his leading. In other words, God will lead us in the path that he has planned for us. So our summary here, Paul started, uh, started the church in Corinth, which found itself existing in an immoral world. Many who believed were faced with very difficult situations. Paul's instructions are not to cause disruptions, but to allow God to make the changes. These are believers lived in an evil world, and they were to be the witnesses of God's love, provision, and deliverance. Our application as believers in a confusing and immoral world. We are not to increase the confusion and disruption, but to be a witness of godly harmony, which can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Apostle Paul's teaching here. Help us to remember that we are not to be a disruptive force, but we are to bring the gospel to this confusing and disrupted world. Help us, Father, to take that opportunity. We pray that you give us opportunities and we be prepared. We ask, Father, for the blessing upon us as this 
family of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can have a union, a harmony, and that we can honor you in our spiritual lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.